We are going to start this morning with our scripture. And um, so today is Joy Day, which is really awesome. Um, And we're talking about the story of Ruth, which is also really awesome. And uh, the whole story is amazing, so it was really hard to choose what part of it to read. Um, So what we're reading is actually the very end of the story. Um, So I want you guys to imagine that you're watching one of those films um, like kids these days like where the ending happens first and you're like I wonder how we get to that ending Um, that's what we're about to do so remember this this is the ending of the story as we experience this um, be ready to kind of fill in some of the pieces and and figure out how it's going to work out together okay so this is from Ruth chapter 4 And Boaz is speaking to, um, like, another, like, villager (laughs) Um, and basically another member of his family who could have married Ruth. Then Boaz said, The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one who took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So, when the next of kin said to Boaz, Acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all of the people, Today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of Malon, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance, in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are my witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem, and through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, hath borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, 
a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the descendants of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Aminadab, Aminadab of Nashon, Nashon of Salmon, Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, and Jesse of David. This is the word of the Lord. So when I found out initially um, that Chris had me penciled in to preach about Ruth, so much of me was so excited because this is a really awesome story. Um, But there was this like tiny other voice of something I, I think the word for it is probably like trepidation or dread. Um, and that wasn't just because this is finals week, although that is also appropriate. Um, that feeling had to do with the narrative about Ruth that I have been told for most of my life. Um, and I don't want to throw anyone under the bus here, but... As someone who fits in the category of people who have just not found our Boaz yet, I wanted to find another way into this passage, a different way to think about it. And I'll tell you guys what I wanted to find instead. This is, this is what I was hoping for. Um, I've told some of you guys this before, but there, I have this imaginary superhero called Meta Girl. Um, And her magical power is that no matter what she faces, no matter what situation she goes into, she can transcend it, Um, which is a really cool power. So, like, whatever's going on that Metagirl comes up to, she is able to, like, take the whole narrative and just flip it on its head and change it in a way so that, um, I don't know, good happens. Um, So what I was hoping to find when I came to this passage and I was reading Ruth as I wanted to to read Ruth as meta girl I wanted I wanted to see her like turning on Beyonce in the background and becoming this kind of like cool scrappy independent woman who didn't care what anyone thought of her she was willing to put it all on the line to care for herself and for Naomi she was the type of woman who could bring home the barley and then in the end she would just kind of marry Boaz so that she could pop herself into the Davidic line because, after all, that's where powerful women should be. That's what, that's what I wanted. But as I sat with this passage, um, I think that the story pushes against both of these kind of fairy tale ideas. It pushes against the fairy tale of either Ruth being saved by Boaz or the fairy tale of Ruth being saved by herself. Instead, I think this story is about something other than any one person being the hero. I think it's something, a story about simple, normal, unheroic ways that we get to encounter each other every single day. And Ruth is really easy to read as a fairy tale because it maps perfectly onto the narrative arc of a good story. I hope you guys remember this from your high school English classrooms. But it's got 
a setup, a conflict, rising action, a climax, a resolution, and then a denouement. Does anyone know how to actually say that word? It's like the, the happily ever after part of the story where you see how it all plays out. And in this way, this story is pretty radically different from the stories of Tamar and Rahab that we've experienced in the last couple of weeks. Those stories cause us to stop in our tracks and remember how fragile the history of God's people throughout time is. And I, I think it's easy when we like look back at some of these kind of hit list Bible stories to assume that there's no other way that it could have been. Of course, Noah was going to make it through the flood. Otherwise, we wouldn't have animals, and we have animals. And of course, the Red Sea was going to part, and of course, it was going to close back up and swallow all of the Egyptians, because we know how that one ends. And I think that we do this also with the story of Advent. We say, of course, the Son of God was going to come to earth as a baby. We talk about this every year. We know how this story ends. And so I think that's part of what Advent is, is taking the time to sit back and think how great a mystery it is that all of this could be just so, so that we would be made children of God. So remembering what we've learned from Tamar and from Rahab, I think a better way to think through the story of Ruth instead of this sort of like fairy tale had to be a happy ending model is as a really good improvisational theater performance or improv. And I know Joey talked last year about a psalm compared to jazz improvisation, which I know very little about um, jazz improvisation, um, but I really love theatrical improv and get really excited about it. So if I get too excited, just wave your hands and tell me to calm it down. Um, in improvisational theater, just like in regular theater, the audience has no idea what's going to happen next. But specifically in improv, unlike in regular theater, there's no script. So the actors also have no idea what's going to happen next. And in this way, it's just like life. It's complex and messy and contingent, and it's happening in real time. In improv, there really are no rules. But in the same way that some stories are better than other stories, there are principles for how to act well, how to live out a good story. Ellen Davis writes about the story of Ruth that it doesn't count as a fairy tale because it has this sort of real life and real time quality because it's repeatable, it's something we can imitate. So as these real people, Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, as they live their lives, they are actually living out these principles that make their story a good story, that make it worth telling. I love that a couple weeks ago Chris talked about Tamar saying yes to God's adventure because if anyone if anyone's actually played improv the first rule of good improv is saying yes so whenever one player and 
they're called players, which I think is really fun, steps out on stage, if they're a good player, the first thing that they're going to do is to say yes, to accept whatever's going on. So like if I come out on stage and you say, there's a, there's a bear in my closet. And I step out on stage and I say, no, there's not. I've completely killed the story. I've denied the possibility of that story going anywhere. So the first rule of improv is just saying yes. And a good improviser knows that that yes, that accepting the reality that your partner or your team is starting to make is actually not enough. For the story to continue and to become a part of the story, you have to be willing to say yes and. So the magical yes and of comedy improv. You want to accept the reality and to build the story, you have to be willing to take a risk and to bring something of yourself to it. So this yes and leads to the second principle of good improv. And this is a rule. The rule is called follow the joy, which feels very appropriate for this morning. The idea of following the joy is that uh, an improv player at any moment in time can ask themselves, what decision is the most joyful? What's the most joyful decision? And that following that choice is going to be a good idea for the story. It means making a courageous choice, stepping into the action, entering the story by adding to it. What it doesn't mean for improv is to come up with something clever. Following the joy doesn't mean like come up with something really cool. It's normally a really obvious choice. What's the most joyful choice? But normally it's something that we're impaired by because you are afraid to make that choice. So following the joy means taking a risk because without taking risks, that story isn't going to go anywhere. So Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, who are the key players in this story, none of them are waiting to either be saved or as individuals single-handedly bringing about their own happy ending. Instead, what each of them is doing is saying yes and. In the face of some real and some hard circumstances, they're accepting what is giving to them and then they are making these courageous and joyful choices towards each other. So Ruth herself has three kind of major yes and moments in the story. We're going to do like a little flannel graph review. So the beginning of the story, there's a famine in Israel. And Naomi's family moves to Moab, where Naomi's sons marry Orpah and Ruth. But then her sons die, and her husband dies. And they leave Naomi completely alone, except for these two foreign women. So Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth, like, hey, I love you guys. You've been nothing but good and kind and faithful to me. But you should stay here when I go back to Israel because you have a chance at another life. You should stay and take that. And then Ruth and Orpah are like, no, we love you. We're staying with you. And then Naomi is like, no, really, turn back. And in my mind, a a fair answer, a yes to accepting the reality of what's going on would have been like, Well, yeah, that's reasonable. I'll go back. But Ruth throws in this sort of first yes and. She follows the joy. And she has this amazing response. She says, "Mm -mm. where you go, I will go. 
And where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Ruth chooses more than a fair response. She chooses a joyful response, a response towards relationship. Okay, so now Naomi has this foreign woman in tow, and they travel back to Israel, and things are looking really bleak. So bleak, in fact, that Naomi runs into everyone she used to know, and she says, "Mm -mm, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter, because God has taken away everything from me. I went away full, and I came back empty. And Ruth as this foreigner with her, this Moabite, very easily could have heard that and said, hey, that hurts my feelings. Now you're on your own. But instead, Ruth makes a really courageous second yes and. And she decides to put um, herself in danger and go to Boaz's field to glean. She walks into that risk in order to provide for Naomi. And she's rewarded because just like, um, just like if she was an improv and she like walked out on stage by herself and was like, what am I doing? Um, she would walk out on stage and then another actor would jump onto the stage. In improv, this is called support. Actually, also in real life, this is called support. <laughs> just like that, Ruth meets someone who is willing to say yes and back to her just like a good improv partner. Boaz recognizes the vulnerable place that Ruth is in, and he goes beyond what is fair. Fair would have been saying, you can glean here, good luck. But instead, he sends her home with a mountain of barley and a really good story for Naomi. Okay, and this is where the story zooms out and goes into one of those movie montages where there's two months worth of scenes of Ruth going to glean and like fluttering her eyelashes at Boaz over the barley fields and it's all very well and nice. But I want us to remember that what's really at stake here is people's lives because as Ruth is working under the provision of Boaz, Naomi is living under the provision of Ruth. So this isn't a story that pretends that systems of injustice and power are not at play here. Rather, all of these players are willing to accept the reality of each other's hard situations and willing to go beyond fair, beyond yes, to cultivate this web of caring relationships. Ellen Davis calls this web a moral ecology of hesed, and hesed just means love, faithful love. So this web that the players are building together is a linked, connected, growing economy of faithful love. The characters are dependent on each other in beautiful ways, ways that invite them to experience joy as they give to each other. Okay, you guys know the end of the story. Ruth does a final yes and to Naomi's sneaky matchmaking attempts and once again puts herself in danger to basically propose to Boaz. Boaz says yes and makes the legal swap that's going to end in our reading today. And it does. It seems like a fairy tale because Naomi's emptiness is turned into fullness as Ruth bears a son 
Everybody sings a musical number, and Ruth is put into the Old Testament Hall of Fame, the genealogy of Jesus. And in the end, it's not Ruth who is the hero. And it's definitely not Boaz. This story is a picture of reality as it can be. Ruth is just one link. She's one star in a constellation of relationships that are ready to function as they should. This is a community that is ready to receive the widow, the stranger, and the poor. And Ruth, just like all of us, finds herself at an intersection of real powers. On one hand, she's vulnerable, and on the other hand, she's a protector. And from this position, in every single one of her yes ands, Ruth presses the people around her towards a more open understanding of what the promise that they claim is all about. So in that first yes and with Naomi, Ruth is clinging a little bit too much. She says, where you sleep tonight, I'm going to be there too. Because for two women who are poor, who are transient, that's actually the most she can promise her. She clings until her love softens Naomi to call her a daughter. And until, in our reading, the son that Ruth bears is called Naomi's son. This makes me wonder where and how we can cling to each other a little bit more. Secondly, in that second yes and, when Ruth goes out to glean, she asks a little bit too much. She shows up in this field and she asks for the provision that society should make for her as a widow. The workers talk about her a little bit like she's crazy, like she's this anomaly, but she is just calling them to the type of justice that's inherent in the covenant that they already claim to be a part of. And so I, I wonder what it would look like for us to ask each other boldly for generosity and also to be willing to frame our lives so that we have margins and surplus because we're already expectant for the needs of our friends and neighbors. And this one for me is really hard. I'm not good at asking people for help. Um, And I'm especially not good at living my life with a lot of margin. But I'm beginning to realize that when I don't, I'm denying others the possibility of saying yes and to me, the joy of saying yes and to me, um, or taking myself out of the joy of being able to say yes and to those around me. And finally, in her third yes and, when Ruth, this foreigner, this Moabite, boldly claims a God and a promise that she wasn't born into, she She reminds Boaz, just before all this, she reminds Boaz, hey, you're a redeemer, she says. Ruth is claiming just a little bit too much. She's claiming a place as an inheritor of that promise based on who she has seen that God to be. And she's asking for Boaz to say yes and to that bigger, broader vision and to live into the types of faithfulness that Ruth knows Boaz's God is all about. And that makes me wonder how we can more fully claim the promises of who we know our Lord to be, even when we feel like we're outside of that promise. 
Ruth can't have become Ruth just in time for this story. This sort of yes and ethic takes a lifetime of practice. So I wonder for us what it would mean to cultivate habits of this sort of audacious courage and hope. Because this story is a snapshot of what happens when people who have been cultivating trusting, joyful, yes and approaches to each other and to God's promises, when people like that encounter each other, just run into each other. Because that is what is actually amazing about this story is Ruth's boldness calls those around her to widen their idea of what is possible inside Israel's covenant, of who can belong inside of God's family. And those people, those around her, are willing to listen to her and to say, yes, we're in for that vision. So there's one more principle in improvisation that completes the idea of yes and and of following the joy. And this is the technique of incorporation. Incorporation in improv is a way of saying that anything that happens, no matter what happens to you, you're supposed to treat it as if it is a huge gift, as if it's like the best thing that could have happened. So if I walk out to start a scene and I say, my nose is bleeding, and my partner enters the scene and says, no, it's not. Oh, gross. Um, incorporation would mean taking that really ugly no that tries to kill the story and treating it as if it is a huge gift. So then what I would have to do is to find a way to expand the narrative in order to make that work. So they say, no, it's not. I could say like, oh, I always forget that you're colorblind. Um, and in that, I'm giving a gift back to my, my partner. They now know something about their character. Or I could say, um, oh, you're right, silly. This isn't blood, this is applesauce. And that is incorporation. The, the presence of Ruth to this community of Israelites is a dangerous presence. Sam Wells says that communities tend to say no when they see themselves threatened by what is impossible, improper, or dangerous. And Ruth's presence as a foreigner is all three. But Boaz, like a really good improviser, sees even her presence as potential gift. In our passage for today, he takes the community's disapproval, that other potential suitor, that other family member who refuses to take Ruth because it would damage his own inheritance, Boaz takes that no and he flips it on its head. He turns that bloody nose into applesauce by treating Ruth as a gift and incorporating her into the story. So this is what we see in our reading today. Boaz stands up for Ruth at the gates of the city and he claims his marriage to even a foreigner, even a Moabite, as a blessing. And then the women at those gates see that Boaz treats Ruth as a gift and they say, yes, and. And they bless her as if she is an Israelite woman. They bless her with the names of Rachel and Leah. And Ruth 
who courageously followed the joy by clinging too much, asking for too much, claiming too much, is now included into a promise that's going to make her the mother of the father of the father of David. She's incorporated into this family, brought into the very lineage that is going to produce Jesus. And what makes this story a great story is that these actors need each other. They need each other to ask boldly, to say yes, to offer gifts, to receive gifts. And the reason, the way that this can be true about Ruth's story and about our common story together is because of the bigger story. This bigger, ridiculously true, improvised fairy tale that we are actually incorporated into. That joy that is found in saying yes to one another and building up an ecology of love and of surplus where we can say to each other, hey, wherever you sleep tonight, I'm going to be there too. Where we can glean in each other's fields and where sometimes we can look at each other and say, hey, come on, you're a redeemer. All of that joy, all that extraness is because of the first and biggest and most joyful yes and of all of them. Because in the beginning, when everything was still primordial soupiness, God's overflow of joy spilled out into creation. It's because of God's first yes, God's joy, that we exist at all. And then, like bad improvisers, we came onto stage and we said, no. We tried to kill the scene. Tried to deny that the story was going to continue. But God went beyond even this initial yes of creation to the yes and of the gospel. To what is even more than fair to what could only be a fitting expression of God's character as the ultimate incorporator of even the most unlikely of gifts, a bent, broken, bruised humanity into a story that's about redemption. One theologian says that God out-narrates every other story because God's creativity can take everything that is broken and incorporate it into a part of a kingdom of plenty. This out-narration is what we anticipate in Christ's coming. Christ with us. Emmanuel. Christ says, hey, where you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I'll stay. Because I'm going to take pain and turn it into laughter. I'm going to take emptiness and I'm going to turn it into fullness. We saw this play out in the most unlikely of ways in Tamar's story. We saw it again as Rahab had her identity changed by her incorporation into God's story of salvation. And you bet we're going to see this again on Christmas Eve. But in the meantime, Ruth, obstinate Ruth, a Moabite a foreigner, reminds us that because of who our God is, God's promise is for everyone who claims it. It didn't all have to be this way. But it did happen this way. 
because our God is a God of overflowing joy, a God of yes and, who is willing to send God's own son to expand the narrative, to bust open this family tree and pull in the foreigner and to incorporate even the most unlikely of gifts into what turns out to be the most beautiful of stories. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your creativity, that you are unfazed by our nose. Thank you for having a big enough story that there's room for all of us in it. Thank you for our community, for the ways that we are already asking and gleaning in each other's fields. Continue to come near to us as we continue to worship. Um, and teach us just how to delight in your joy more and more and more. Amen.